0: Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty.
1: Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter.
0: It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity.
1: This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. This is the Loving Liberty program. 801-331-8113 801 331 8113 is my number if you are so inclined if you'd like to call in. I'd really love to hear from you. Got a lot of fun stuff to talk about this hour. In fact, this we're going to we're going to go a little bit uh, off the beaten path and I hope you don't mind this, but sometimes I just I see something that's interesting and unique and I think, yeah, I I want to <laughs> I want to cover that or I want to I want to take a, a closer look. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about uh, what we can uh, learn from Amish, from the Amish, about technology. i never spent much time in, in Amish country. In fact, I don't think I've ever been in, in true Amish country. I've been around Mennonite country, which is similar in some ways. But when it comes to being really hardcore, self-reliant, absolutely committed to their way of living, which requires a lot of them, by the way, I mean it's one of those things that uh, you you got to be fully committed. You you can't be just uh, I, I'm I'm Amish on the weekends. Uh, it's it's it takes much much more commitment, but they seem to avoid a lot of problems too. Keep in mind they're human beings, you know. I'm sure their kids get wayward, you know. Fail to grow their beard out long enough or something like that. I don't know. I don't know what it might be. But here are four things we can learn from Amish technology. This is an article by David Evans, published on intellectualtakeout.org. He says Picture the Amish for a moment. What do you see in your mind? Do you see dour men in bulky black coats with beards? Or horse drawn buggies clomping down asphalt highways? Do you see a technophobic people horribly out of step with the 21st century? Well, if, you're, if these are your thoughts, you're not alone. Yet, according to Kevin Kelly, co-founder of Wired Magazine and author of What Technology Wants, this popular image of the Amish could not be more wrong. Kelly writes, the Amish are steadily adopting technology at their pace. They are slow geeks. As one Amish man told Howard Reingold, we don't want to stop progress. We just want to slow it down. But why do the Amish want to slow progress? Well, the answer is that the Amish view the appeal of new innovations differently than the average American. Instead of worrying about surface aspects of technology, such as the number of selfies a smartphone holds, the Amish are concerned with how inventions will affect their families and way of life. Ooh, they're taking a broader approach here. According to Kelly, the Amish guide the adoption of new technologies with four main principles. Number one enhance community convenience and trendiness are optional to the option or to the Amish rather technologies must enhance family and community and Kelly cites Kelly rather cites the concern for preserving tight-knit communities as the reason the Amish don't drive cars Kelly says when cars first appeared at the turn of the last century the Amish noticed that drivers would leave and the community would go shopping or sightseeing in other towns instead of shopping local and visiting friends family or even the sick On Sundays, therefore, the ban on unbridled mobility was aimed to make it hard to travel far and to keep energy focused in the local community. Now, here the author says, uh, considering this, how often does the average family today think about the impact that new apps or devices will have on the health of their personal and communal relationships? Well, speaking just for myself, I'd wager it's not much. Number two. The second thing that uh, Kelly observes about the Amish is their selectivity. They know how to say no, and they're not afraid to refuse new things. Now, this stands in stark contrast to the average American to whom it's often impossible to resist the latest gadget. This can lead to an endless obsession with updates and improvements, an obsession that consumes time, energy, and even the health of key relationships. By contrast, the Amish have the wisdom to say no when they don't believe a new gizmo will benefit them and so protect their family from the centrifugal forces of boundless innovation. Number three, they evaluate by experience. The Amish evaluate new things by experience instead of by theory, Kelly reports. Now that's not to say that the Amish are not willing to give new technologies a chance. They simply handle it in a very controlled and methodical manner. Case in point is the Amish relationship with cell phones. Cell phones were embraced by women who could keep in touch with their far-flung family since they didn't drive. But the bishops also noticed the cell phone was so small it could be kept hidden, which was a concern for people dedicated to discouraging individualism. Instead of making snap decisions, the Amish allow for experimentation, keeping a close eye on how their families and communities are affected. Try first and relinquish later, if need be, could well be the Amish motto. By contrast, Americans, Kelly says, are good at trying first, but not so good at relinquishing. But what? But would we be better off with periods of controlled experimentation like the Amish? Fair question. Number four, choices impact others. In other words, the Amish believe choices are not individual, but they are communal. The community shapes and enforces technological direction. And here the author points out that the Amish recognize something that too few Americans seem to recognize these days. The impact of individual choice is not limited to individuals. The choices of one person creates ripples that will affect both family and community. Now compare the Amish to the way in which most Americans treat choice. How often do we think about how our actions will impact those around us? Let's be honest. We love our tech gadgets, but are the Amish on to something? Would we be a lot more satisfied in life if we considered these four principles when making our technological choices? This is an essay from David Evans, writing for intellectualtakeout.org. See, I'm afraid I've been guilty of, of buying into the stereotype. Well, you know, they're a bunch of Luddites. They're afraid of technology. They fear that, a, you know, a mirror is engaging in, in the sin of pride. You know, if, if you take a picture, it steals their soul. I've heard this stuff, too, and I don't know that that's necessarily the case. But you have to admit, they do have a very strong sense of community. And this may seem interesting, or may seem kind of out of place you know to share this with you the well it sounds like you're touting the values of community when you were just talking about individualism last hour, the individual versus the collective and yeah there's there's definitely some collective thinking and collective identity that's at work here here's one of the differences though it's voluntary. See with that word when it's when it's voluntary when when consent is given freely. That changes everything. It's when a person has to be coerced into their associations. That's when it starts to look pretty negative. I had a very fascinating conversation with a, a woman at uh, FeeCon last week. Um, kind of a striking lady, small. Um, a small Asian woman uh, with purpose. Man, you could just see it in every step she took. She had purpose. And she stopped by the booth and was asking about the Loving Liberty Radio Network and, you know, what do you do? And as I'm talking with her, I, I said, well, you know, here's what we are. And I asked her, so so who are you with or what, what organization are you with? And she kind of got defensive and was like, well, I'm, I'm with no one. I'm an empire of me. And she described who she was, a surgeon, a realtor, an innovator, professor. You know, she's very, very driven. And she raised a point that really got me to thinking, and that is uh, there was so much um, advocacy for individual liberty, free markets and and things like this um, throughout FECON. That's the you know, the whole theme is, you know, we're promoting liberty and liberty starts with the individual and respect for the individual's rights. But she said, I've noticed that it seems like people really are dying to attach themselves. To a group, they want to be a part of some organization and she had a very healthy distrust of organizations in general. And I can see what she's saying. And I'm guilty of it. I'm as guilty as sin of, of uh, finding comfort within like-minded people. Now, I don't think the solution is, hey, you got a lone wolf McQuaid your way through life and, you know, don't, don't ever join any organization. I, I find, uh, for instance, uh, my, my, um, my church congregation... Great things happen when I swallow my individuality and I interact and I I work with them toward common goals. And we can get a lot of stuff done. I know a lot of that sometimes looks like helping somebody move, pack or unpack their their moving van. But, But nonetheless, when people pull together in a common direction, there are some great things that can happen. But again, when it's done on a voluntary basis, that is the optimal way to approach such things. So I'm not going to fault the Amish for doing what they can to maintain their community. Frankly, they avoid uh, a lot of the problems. Uh, one of the things I think they're, they're exempt from Social Security, I believe. I know they're exempt from the uh, Affordable Care Act. Well, what's the price they pay? Well, they have to be more self-reliant. Now, for some people, that's like, oh, well, that's a deal breaker. I wouldn't want to do that. But for others, myself included, it's like, huh, I wish I could be more like that. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. If you'd like to join the conversation, you may always do so whenever the urge strikes. 801-331-8113 is the number. Found a great article here by Michael Warren Davis. And since uh, since the booth that we had at FeeCon last week was set up right next to Praxis, if you remember I had Isaac Morehouse from Praxis on the show here, um, I guess it's been just a little over a week ago. I saw an article that just caught my attention because the title is Don't Go to College. <laughs> now, that's that's going to elicit some reactions in people. Oh, hey, whoa, hey, whoa, no. How are you going to ever make your way in the world if you don't go to college? But I, I love Praxis. I love their approach. I think that uh, they offer an innovative and I think a very viable way for a person to move forward without following the, uh, the script that most of us have grown up with. I mean, there's a lot of things that have shifted and some things... Uh, In some areas, yeah, college is going to be a necessity. You know, you want to be an electrical engineer. You want to be a, you know, a doctor, a lawyer, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's a necessity. But there are a lot of alternatives that have come forward. And this article points out why you have options that you may not believe you otherwise would have had. Michael Warren Davis, writing for IntellectualTakeout.org, says, I can't pretend to have any insights into the experiences of successful black people seeing as I'm neither. But he says, I was struck by the video of Robert Smith's commencement address at Morehouse College, where he announces that he'll personally pay off every single graduate student loans. Unless you're the personal recipient of Mr. Smith's benevolence, the best part of that video has to be the chap in the very very bottom left corner of the screen, the one in the Tudor bonnet and horn-rimmed glasses, whose face lights up like an owl that's just been awarded a lifetime supply of chocolate-dipped barn mice. Writing in the Atlantic. Ibram X. Kendi put the story into the context of American racial inequality. More than the money we make, the awards or recognition or titles we earn each of us will be measured by how much we contribute to the success of the people around us. Smith told the Morehouse graduates, true wealth comes from contributing to the liberation of people. Now for accomplished African-Americans, that means looking realizing rather that we took advantage of a fleeting glimpse of opportunity and success just before the window is slammed shut to use Smith's words. For anti-racists of all races, it means assuming power and changing policy and maximizing impact to reopen windows for all because we can't be community or community made, rather, if we're not making the community. The author here says, again, I have nothing meaningful to say about the black experience in America, but we need stronger communities in this country across the board. We can't be community made if we are not making the community. That's a profoundly conservative idea. Now, Morehouse, as you've no doubt gathered, is what's called an historically black college, or HBU. I always found that to be an odd phrase since it's also currently black. 85% of it is, to be exact. We don't say that Harvard is historically elite or that Michigan State is historically bad at football, but I digress. Morehouse is known for its distinguished role of alumni from Martin Luther King to Herman Cain. For those who believe in systemic racial discrimination, and again, I have no expertise on the subject, the HBU's provide opportunities for black students who they argue won't get a fair shake from the Ivy League. All of this presupposes that relatively small numbers of black students in elite institutions is detrimental to blacks. After all, feminists demand equal treatment from corporate boardrooms, but not conscription boards. But I'm not so sure that's the case. He says, look, too many people go to college as it is. For the middle class, it's practically mandatory. Teenagers saddle themselves with debt so they can move to new cities, attend nightly orgies, and snore through the same humanities courses they snored through in high school. Some of them get lucky and land internships at big-time marketing firms. And they're set for life even before they graduate. But most of them don't use their degrees and couldn't if they tried. He says, I remember one of my professors asking our English honors seminar what we'd read over the summer. I mostly like read uh, articles on Facebook, one girl explained. Yeah, said another. I was just like uh, mostly keeping up with the news. Well, after cycling through 20 students, I was the only student in the class who had read a book. Even literature majors don't care about literature. If that's the case, why are they even there? Now, this was at the University of Sydney, which, as my fellow alumnus Clive James quipped, likes to think of itself as Oxford or Cambridge laterally displaced 12,000 miles. I was baffled they got into the honors program at all. Then I realized if you're good at doing school stuff, you can excel in any of the humanities. Memorize factoids for a test, write an essay telling the professor what he wants to hear, make a controversial and vaguely relevant comment in a tutorial, and boom! You're a Bachelor of Arts. But what do you have to show for it? Again, maybe you befriended a low level executive who can give your fledgling career a boost. Maybe your college has a strong alumni network. But while companies all but require applicants to have a bachelor's in something, They all know it doesn't imply that you're competent in any way unless they need someone to write a freudo Marxist analysis of sense and sensibility, in which case you're set. He says, so corporations need to stop mandating that applicants have useless degrees in subjects they don't care about. That, he says, I think is only a matter of time. But why work for a corporation at all? That's another bubble we need to pop. Only about 10% of Americans are employed in manufacturing and agriculture. That is, they actually make stuff. About 4 out of 5 Americans just push money around. We're reaching peak overcapitalization. Hopefully, President Trump's protectionism and producerism will become mainstays of the American conservative agenda, and the HR guy at the local shoe factory isn't going to grill you to see how well you know your focal. In the meantime, learn a trade. A plumber can easily make almost $100,000 a year. And if you're not keen on working with human waste, electricians make almost as much. You can train on the job as opposed to dying of exhaustion in an unpaid internship. Best of all, you can get started immediately and stay in your hometown. There's a huge labor deficit in the trades. I've heard many old-timers say I'd gladly hire any young guy who can spell his own name and isn't a drug addict. The problem is, Our culture poo-poos manual labor. A white-collar job that pays $40,000 is automatically more prestigious than a blue-collar job that pays $75,000. Success is measured by how clean you keep your fingernails. Americans also see themselves, to quote Steinbeck, as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. (laughs) Most of us will go for the billion-to-one odds of being the next Steve Jobs against the guarantee of an ordinary, comfortable, quiet life. But he says both are at bottom just pretentiousness. So you want to help young people? Here's how. If you're a mother or father, don't hype that piece of paper. Don't stuff your kids' heads with bourgeoisie fantasies about corner offices and BMWs. Let him experience the true unique sense of achievement that comes from working with his hands. Help him to recognize the simple dignity of the worker like St. Joseph. Raise him to be a provider, a husband, a father not an entitled fop with an expensive watch. Unless you're in a position, or if you're in a position to hire and fire, don't require a candidate to have a bachelor's degree, unless it's absolutely essential. Provide on-the-job training for a fair wage. There's actually very little risk to you as the employer. Until fairly recently, a woman didn't even need a nursing degree to be an RN. There was a time when universities were centers of learning and leisure for young aristocrats, and all jobs began as apprenticeships. Even the king was only a prince. Even the priest got his start as an altar boy. Before I die, I expect the progressives will stop talking about the deficit of black people at elite colleges and start talking about the deficit of black people in the trades, manufacturing and agriculture. And it won't be because of racism. Just the opposite. In fact, it will be because well-meaning rich guys like Mr. Smith will continue pushing black teenagers into B.A. programs long after whites have realized they're usually dead ends. Whites will be earning a living wage in their early teens while black students will be working at mall cafes to pay off their student loans. You ever notice politicians don't talk about the working class anymore? Everyone except the super rich are lumped together in the middle class. That will change, too.
0: Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion.
1: Without the partisan
0: outrage, this is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I just shared an article with you from Michael Warren Davis. Don't go to college. And he makes a pretty strong case here. The future of this country belongs to those who work. Look, I, I have to admit, I, there was a time when I was kind of a skeptic about this as well. And, and I, I have to also say, I'm not a guy who's particularly good with my hands. But I have the deepest respect for those who have that, uh, those skills and who have that drive who are willing to get dirty in the course of a day's work. You know, these are the folks who keep the country running. Now, this is not to say we don't have a place for, for the engineers, the smart, the smarty pants among us. They keep things running as well. But what do you think about that council that uh, maybe, maybe that bachelor's degree is is more of a dead end? Again, it depends on what you want to do. It may be the keys to the kingdom for for some professions, but there's a lot that a person can do if they are willing to apply themselves. And I think the most important thing, this is this is probably my biggest takeaway. The mentality that says somebody needs to give me a job. Puts you. At the mercy of somebody who has a job that they can give you. In other words, it's that that employee mindset I need to find somebody who will will give me a job and a steady paycheck in return for me doing work that will, you know, hopefully, you know, through the value you're creating and the work you're doing, be uh, creating wealth for them. Now, I've heard this actually more from, uh, you know, the multi level marketing side, but I don't think that it's a false statement. Would you rather spend your time building your own wealth or building someone else's? because if you're okay with just building someone else's and you just want the you're you're willing to trade a little bit of risk or maybe even a lot of risk and uncertainty for the mundane cubicle dwelling steady paycheck not too much expected of you just you know show up and do your job keep your head down and everything will be great as you play out the clock but to me that seems like a terrible waste of potential and, and I, I got to point out, look, I've, I've held that mindset for a good portion of my life. Well, I'll just have to find another job. I'll just have to, you know, find somebody who'll hire me. Scariest thing in the world is to start your own business and do your own thing, to turn loose of that lifeline and go. And of course, you run the risk, too, that you're, you're going to be caught between a rock and a hard place, because when you work for yourself, you may be a terrible employee and a terrible boss at the same time. But that entrepreneurial mindset, I'm convinced that is a big part of the cure to what ails us. Because the alternative and and I grant there's there's you know, there's nuance here. It's not either or it's either black or white here, but. The people who have to depend on someone to hire them, the people with the employee mindset tend to be less willing to stand on their own or less willing to assert their own individualism or assert their own rights. That doesn't make them bad. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that they're evil or even dumb or just, you know, they're underachievers. But I do think a lot of people choose to put, uh, you know, figurative fetters on themselves because they know well at least i can count on a paycheck and, and i think that that belief that I, I have to do this because that way i can count on you know a steady income i think that comes from they doubt themselves they don't quite understand how much they have to offer or what ways they might create value whereas the entrepreneur is constantly looking what is the unmet need or, or the unmet need rather what is it that, that i see that could be done by someone That people want. Now, that's not always an easy thing to pick up on, but there's some amazing people who become uh, fabulously wealthy and not just in the sense of, yeah, man, I, you know, I just get stacks and stacks of $100 bills and roll around naked on the floor in them because that's what it means to be wealthy. What I see from many of these entrepreneurial types is this desire to use what wealth they create to bless the lives of others. I know what I'm saying here is anathema to the idea that, uh, well, you know, capitalism is just about exploiting the workers and, you know, taking advantage of them. It has a very strong ring. That kind of protest has a strong ring that sounds a lot like what Marx was preaching back in his time. But I think it's because we don't understand the difference between capitalism versus crony capitalism, which is unfortunately what a lot of people think of today when they hear the word capitalism. What are your thoughts? 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hello. Howdy.
0: Is this Brian? Speaking. It's Colin Muldoon, Brian.
1: Colin, how are you doing, my friend?
0: Well, I just heard you use the word "anathema," so:
1: Did I use it I correctly? Please you. tell me I used it correctly.:
0: I think it did <laughs> um, I don't even know what the context was, but the uh but yeah i uh, I thought that was funny. Um, anyway, am I on? right you, now we, we
1: are on the air yep you've oh, you have well, stumbled right into a live broadcast.
0: Really. Okay, so I want to know from kind of what paradigm you're speaking of. I'm not really sure that I, I I've only been listening for a few minutes, but you're talking about you're talking about people who are uh, are you talking about young people who are coming up and you know, maybe they're they don't know their way because of the educational system or what.
1: Yeah, I, I'm going back to an article I shared in the last segment from Michael Warren Davis about. It's, it's just titled "Don't Go to College," and the point he's making is right. for a lot of students, college is a dead end because they end up with a degree and tons of student debt, but the degree isn't really what's opening doors for them. And, and he's suggesting um, if, if we're to the point where we look at a $40,000 white-collar job as being somehow superior to a blue-collar job that pays $75,000 because we don't want to get our hands dirty, maybe there's something wrong with our thinking.
0: Yes. And – but I think that this has been – I think this is something that we've known. I, I think people in general have known for quite a while um, – I think when you and I were kids, um, I think there was definitely pressure to go to and get a four-year degree. Go to a college, get a four-year degree, and then you go from there. Uh, Do you agree or disagree with that?
1: No, that's the script I think that most of us followed. Get good grades. I, go to a good college. Get a degree. Get a job, and then right. you know that's that's the path to success.
0: And and I I I feel like uh, yeah I, all right so we're kind of in our late forties. Uh, <laughs> but, but but no I mean you you know like uh, yeah you, you get you get to the pe- the the people who are in their 30s and, and so, like my uh, nephews and nieces, and they, uh, I think things changed. I, I, I think that uh, people started doing things differently. Now, I, I didn't read the article to which you know you're referring, so.
1: Um, I'm gonna post it in the I, show notes when I put the podcast up, and I'll, I'll have a link to the podcast on Facebook probably shortly after the top of the hour. So. Yeah, If you want to follow that through, I, I'm not saying that it's a one size fits all thing. And that's, that's probably, that's probably the the thing I'm, that's the reason I'm sharing this is because there's a lot of that one size fits all mentality, but we need people who understand the trades. We need folks who are able to get their hands dirty and know how to machine metal or, or dig a proper trench or move earth. And thank goodness for those people.
0: Oh, I I agree with you, and and I kind of wish that I would have learned something along the way. I never did, but the, uh, you know the, the idea that, uh, you know, you go into auto mechanics, and that's somehow less than being a teacher is absurd.
1: Right. You know? anybody who's had car uh, trouble will agree with you. They're like, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> some of the worst well, kind of stress.
0: Well, the mechanics will tell you now as they're retiring and uh, they have boats and condos. You know, yes, it's a very good way to make a living. And so. uh,
1: Well, Colin, we're coming up on the break here. You're welcome to stick with me. Can, Can you hang with me through a three minute break here? Sure. Okay, we'll pick it up here. The other side of this, these commercial messages. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after this. Back to loving liberty I have my friend Colin on the phone with me we 've been talking a little bit about uh, work, the employee mindset versus the entrepreneur mindset and uh, and blue collar versus white collar work. Uh, Colin, you were just asking me a question off the air that I, I think it would be fair game if you wanted to, to ask it on the air as well about uh, how people see that difference between blue and, and white collar work i don 't want to twist your arm, but but you 're welcome to ask that
0: well. Oh, okay, thanks. Um, I think where I was coming from was we all have cultures in which we grow up. And so you and I personally off air were talking about l d s faith and how they view occupations and how you grow up and how, you know, what's a good job and what's a bad job, blah blah blah. Uh I grew up, you know, I grew up Catholic and it it wasn't that blue collar jobs were looked down upon, but it was something that you wanted wanted to get out of. Um you didn't want to labor. You wanted to be a manager or you wanted to own something or you wanted to do something like that. You know, growing up with uh With LDS people in southern Idaho, I didn't see the same type of thing. It was like, you provide. You you do what you're best at. You know, there wasn't like a, it it was sort of less, it was classless. If I could say that, no, that, that, that now, makes would, sense. W- w- would you agree with me, or would you disagree with me? With no.
1: That? It's, so, so the the guy the guy who uh, runs the roto router truck is just as honorable for working to provide for his family as the lawyer who goes and you know represents clients in court and and yes. you know provides for his family that way. Yes. Yeah. This is, this is a prime and, place and, for a lawyer joke, but I'm I'm resisting the urge. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just an observation of, of culture. Um, and and it's purely my own observation growing up in, you know, late 20th century, you know, southern Idaho,
1: that type of thing. So, well, let me ask you this, though. Did you ever hear yeah. the words, hey, you know, you don't want to – you know, maybe you see somebody out there, you know, digging uh, – you know, digging a, a water line. They gotta hook up a water line you, and you hear somebody say to you, Colin, this is why you go to school. So you don't have to do that kind of grunt work.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. I know I heard yeah. it too, and yet you know well, what? When 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 the water line is broken and when there's flooding or there's a problem, guess who I'm gonna call and I'm gonna pay a handsome amount of money to is the guy who knows how to do all of that stuff.
0: That's right. Her, I heard a lot of that with, uh, just farming, you know, farming in general, um, people who really worked hard out in the fields, they, their children, they, they didn't want their children to do that. You know, they wanted them to do something else. And, you know, my family, I mean, is a perfect example of that. You know, uh, we are farmers, you know. Not this generation, but they were, and uh, and yeah, it's interesting how that works.
1: Well, and, you know, I, I see it especially among ranching families. You know, there's there's almost a, there's a legacy that we want to uphold. But you know, technology has shifted a lot of things. I mean, look, I'm doing this program. You and I are talking. This is being broadcast, to not just you know, to, to uh, the, we have a a radio station right now in St. George that's carrying this live, but we have a worldwide or potential worldwide audience. I'm sitting in the front office of my home as I do this.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) What an incredible time
1: to be alive.
0: (laughs) That's right. It is. And, but, but it's also, uh, you know, to your larger question, it's, Let's not forget about the people who actually make, you know, I'm thinking about this, it's interesting. I, I, I live at a place that has a 50-year-old uh, sprinkler system, you know, and, you know, I have no idea how this thing really works. No clue at all. And if something goes wrong with it, I have no idea how to to do anything.
1: I feel your it. pain, man.
0: <laughs> but there is a guy, you know, that I can call, and how did that guy learn how to do this? and And I think that we absolutely do not appreciate. Trades people, or however you want to describe it, trades people, or people who work with their hands, um, it, and it's not encouraged nearly enough. Nearly I, enough.
1: I have a really good friend in Southern in Utah school. who who he he always embarrasses me because he looks at me and he's like, "Man, you are the smartest guy I've ever met," and I'm like, "Oh, you ought to get out more." But I, you? He said you? He said that about me, and I'm like, wow. Wow. <laughs> I know. what. Nobody say anything. <laughs> Just let him keep believing. <laughs> That's pretty nice. <laughs> but I look at him. He's He has been a, a heating and uh, air conditioning you know, and, and ventilation technician and actually has, has built and owns his own company. But this guy, in his spare time, is an inventor and a fabricator. He knows how to weld. Yeah. He knows how to cut metal. He knows how to make incredible things and and you know so he's he's admiring me man you've just got this mind like a steel trap and he's and i'm like yeah but look at the things you create he creates such incredible value and it, and i don't feel like there's a competition here of well who's doing more but i i guess i say this just to point out even though he he his hands are dirty and his back is sore you know when he's done working at night there is no doubt in my mind the world's a better place because of him and what he's doing
0: absolutely Hey Brian, I, I, I just thought of something I uh, I posted something on on Facebook the other day and I got a little bit of flack for it because it kind of pressed back on conventional education. It was just a uh it was a silly meme. But I but I got this little pushback by some people who uh conventional educators. And um the uh, the question I want to ask you is: Do you think that do you think that we need to decentralize education and make it work locally? And and the way that I the way that I see this is that why do you have to why does why does it all have to be regimented or uniform? Why can't a guy who who is into auto mechanics, by the time he's 16, you know, be an expert at doing that?
1: No, I, I do think that there's way too much centralization in how we approach education. And particularly, I'm, I'm talking about public or government um, government-administered education. Now, this isn't to say that there aren't some wonderful people within that system, my wife being one of them. But... The one-size-fits-all approach, I think uh, we, we've kind of outgrown. We're not an agrarian society coming into the industrial age and, you know, everybody yeah. having to, to be taught like it's a conveyor belt. And yet, uh, w- once you get government administering something, they kind of specialize in one-size-fits-all.
0: Why, why do we get that pushback, though? Because
1: it's the system most of us have been raised to regard as essential, or it's it's the only framework in which we have to view the, the world, most people just haven't been exposed to the alternatives or they don't understand the history. Uh, by the way, if, if you get the chance, uh, uh, check out uh, the conversation that Larry Reed from fee.org had with a couple of educators, Mike Marguson and Justin Spears. That one aired just yesterday. And uh, so uh-huh. you, you can find that uh, posted. I think I shared it on Facebook as well. Terrific discussion about where education is and, and where it came from. You know, I have some real problems with the system, the way that it's administered, even though I'm sure that it's filled with wonderful people who are doing their best to make a difference.
0: Yes, exactly. I don't I, I don't attack the system for the good that it does. It's it's what you kinda of leave out, which is people who they're not going to be um well they're not going to be academics right you know they're they're gonna they're gonna be manufacturers they're gonna be
1: or tradesmen
0: well they're gonna be tradesmen but they'll they'll also be managers see think of it this way you 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 uh you know you go into uh, you know some sort of manufacturing trade you you go that way rather than the other
1: way i gotta stop you here colin because we are up against the clock so good to talk with you though man let's do this again
0: talk to you brian all right
1: this is loving liberty we'll have the podcast up you can check it out at your leisure we'll have it up here in just a few minutes
0: credible thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage this is the loving liberty radio network